standard issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops, for which I got to leave my house. Seriously now. So I hope you'll excuse any giddy kipper you hear as I chat to the excellent Dr Polly Russell, curator of the British Library's cracking new exhibition, Unfinished Business, The Fight for Women's Rights, which couldn't be more up our alley if me and Hannah had furtled around in the archives ourselves. I do a solid intro at the top of the interview, so I won't waffle on here, but just to say it is a properly special exhibition that I couldn't recommend more. Whether you physically attend at the British Library, engage with the mass of online resources that have been put together around it, or treat yourself to the stylish accompanying book, which is itself a wealth of resources. You can find out more at the British Library's website, www.bl.uk, and Despite a lot of the exhibits holding poignant, if not tragic, herstories, I'm confident that you will come away as I did, inspired, energised and ready to continue fighting. Hello, I'm out and about, I know, at the British Library with Dr Polly Russell, lead curator for contemporary politics and public life here, as well as a talented multi-hyphenate in other places. Polly, hello. <laughs> hello. Now, Polly's just escorted me round the new exhibition which we're going to talk about which is called Unfinished Business The Fight for Women's Rights and opened on Friday the 23rd of October runs through till February the 21st next year and it's an astonishing collection of content it's just incredible (laughs) women content big fan and I'm going to steal a little line from a letter you've got from Dame Rebecca West who describes something as electrifying and I think that is exactly what the exhibition is It is a landmark exhibition showing how the work of contemporary feminist activists has its roots in the long and complex history of women's rights. So, Polly, the exhibition is called Unfinished Business, and I'm going to start with an easy question. What have we got left to do? Well, not much. And we're (laughs) nearly there. No, I'm so thrilled you've come. I'm so delighted that you love the exhibition. And as you say, we're in this moment of, you know, incredible contemporary activism. And I think that, you know... COVID, Black Lives Matter have really drawn attention to so many issues that particularly attend to women, particularly working class women, uh, ethnic and minority women, women in precarious jobs, women who are working in caring, the national health system, all kind of propped up not only by women, but in large part by women, uh, many of them in precarious work, low paid work. I mean, that's that's just some of the issues. But also, you know, there are ongoing threats to uh, women's safety you know two women a week are killed as a result of domestic violence in Mm -hmm. this country you know the the list goes on if you look at social media issues around representation body shaming all sorts of things there's a lot to do when you were showing me around your enthusiasm despite the enforced face mask wearing was palpable (laughs) is this an exhibition that's really close to your heart yes i mean this is an exhibition which is fascinating in its content, the stories that you can tell, the lives that are in there, the characters that you're engaging with. I mean, it's just, it really is completely riveting. And it's also very personal. It's it's a very democratic subject. All of us know women, are connected to women, are women, have mothers, have sisters. You know, it, it matters to us all, men, women, you know, however you identify this subject matters. And so it's thrilling to work on an exhibition where you're delving into the history or trying to connect this present moment with a longer history. But it's something that is changing all the time. It's polemic, it's complicated, it's challenging. That is wonderful to be working on something like that. And it matters to me. It matters to me because I, you know, I, have, I have daughters, I have sons. 
I'm invested in the future. When you're putting this exhibition together, has it left you hopeful for the future or did it make you want to reach for your screaming pillow? <laughs> so what I, what, I, what I think is that I really want people to come to this exhibition and I want them to feel a mixture of being totally infuriated and outraged mm-hmm. at the injustices that women have systematically over time been subjected to, but at the same time to feel unbelievably optimistic and energised about what change is possible. Changes that are structural changes, changes to the law, changes to you know, education, those sorts of changes, changes to rights, but also changes in attitudes and how we think that huge changes are possible and have happened. And that movement isn't equal. It does, it's not just a kind of you know, march forward to progress. You can march forward and step back. And in some ways, some live, people's lives are unequal. Or people are experiencing oppressed lives at the same time. Other people are having you know, incredible freedoms. It's not equal, but there is progress and it is possible. And so that's what I feel personally. And that's what I hope people feel when they walk around the exhibition. It is a real push-pull because you can see progress made and the fire with which those women got that progress made. But we stood in front of a poster that had seven demands and we were like, yeah, that's not sorted, that's not sorted. Oh, that one's done, that's not sorted. There is still so much work to do. You're referring to the Sea Red poster collective workshop of the women's liberation movement, Seven Seven Demands, which would have been made in around 1978-79. And that was the seven demands of the women's liberation movement. And they were demands like equal pay, 24-hour childcare, freedom from sexual violence, Outrageous demands, absolutely outrageous. Completely ridiculous. (laughs) No, things that we think of as being, yeah, completely reasonable. And in some ways, we have made great moves forward. That's absolutely true. Certainly in things like education, you know, equal education, not totally, but in many ways that sphere is quite equal. In Mm -hmm. fact, lots of girls achieve very highly in in many subjects. So, And access to education is probably better than it was certainly in the 70s. So in some ways there's been movement forward. But you're right, it's not, we haven't reached utopia, that's for sure. But the fact that that poster was possible, the fact that we're having this conversation, the fact that we have this exhibition, that's a huge move forward from 50 years ago, 30 years ago, yeah, 100 years ago. That itself, that we're having those conversations, that we're pushing up against those ideas is incredibly exciting and positive, I think. I hope that they have bottled your optimism and it is for sale in the gift shop (laughs) alongside the very beautiful book, which we'll talk about later. But it is so easy to become sort of weighed down by how hard the fight is and how there are some aspects within the exhibition that you look at what women were asking for and fighting for 70 years ago. And there's there's been very little movement, but I found that the exhibition actually is, is uplifting. I think it is a really positive exhibition. Was that something that you went in wanting to have? I'm not sure it was a conscious decision to be positive in that sense. I mean, certainly nobody wanted people to come and be miserable and weeping by the end of it. That's for sure. That's not going to help anybody. Classic women. No, not at all. And and actually, speaking of weeping, but also laughing, we also wanted there to be a lot of humour and comedy in the exhibition. Which because, there is, yeah. Yeah, so we've got cartoons, we've got great examples of graffiti, we've got very witty women, you know, because we definitely wanted to put pay to any idea that um, feminists or women aren't funny, because they are. That's kind of thread throughout. But it's not that we were self-consciously trying to be optimistic or upbeat. It's that when you engage with these histories, 
They really are actually tragic. Many of them are poignant. Many of them are heartbreaking. But they also have the seeds of change, the seeds of tenacity, you know, that, that allowed for enormous change to take place. So even the most heartrending objects, and there are heartrending objects in there, the fact that they're there and we can talk about them and that they're on display, that allows us space to imagine how the world could be, should be, and indeed in some places is different. So that is just inevitably it, it takes you to somewhere positive, which doesn't mean that you shouldn't still be questioning and fighting. Mm -hmm. It's not a complacent positive, I don't think. I don't think so either. I think you've, you've hit it just brilliantly. There's that positivity. I think just knowing that all these women have fought before and are fighting now just gives you that impetus to go, okay, well, I can join in. There is something that I can join in. I don't feel like I'm just banging my head against a brick wall or like spending too much time in my screaming pillow. I feel like there is change that can happen. So clearly it is an exhibition that the scope is vast and you split it into three sections, which are body, mind and voice. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the whys and hows of that decision? Yeah, so, so when we first started off, we didn't have a structure, particularly. We just knew we wanted to tell this massive, audacious, audacious, crazy story. And it was completely unwieldy and out of control. And we knew we had to put some sort of structure on it. And the idea of body, mind and voice came into play because actually those are the sort of areas, the main, they are the areas in which if you want to live a fully realized life, you have to be able to exert control over and autonomy over and have freedoms in your body, mind and voice. Mm -hmm. So in order to be sort of a fully realized human being, a free human being, you need to have those things. And those are the areas that women have historically, you know, obviously struggled, campaigned, fought in order to assert control. So that was a kind of nice, neat structure. It's also quite simple. Everyone knows a body and a mind and a voice, but they're deceptively simple because actually all of them are incredibly complicated about what that means or what, what, how the kind of politics of those unravel. So within each of those big overarching structures we then have subcategories so within body we start off with representation but then we have biology and we have autonomy and so we have we break down the body into different sections and the same is the case for mind and voice as well which is your favorite section i think my favorite section is that's a really hard question i probably oh that's a mean question i think i'm gonna say oh i'm gonna say voice I think I'm going to say, no, I'm going to say body. I'm going to say the body <laughs> section, but I love the mind one too. That's like asking me which of my children I love the most. So yeah. Really um, mean question. Well, that is my next question, which is literally, please, can you pick a few of your favorite children, sorry, exhibits, and tell us why you love them? Because you've got some astonishing finds in there. Yeah, I, there are 180 objects in total, and we've got banners, film, sound, we've got clothing, manuscripts, posters, you know, we've got a huge amount of different sorts of formats. So it's very lively, it's very colourful, like the story that it tells. But among, if you're going to force me to choose favourites, yes. some favourites, I'm going to select um, a few. I, I absolutely love the first object in the exhibition is the tintype portrait Pitao by Khadija Say. Khadija Say was the artist 
who many will know um, tragically died in the Grenfell Tower in 2017. She's British Gambian heritage, um, comes from a mixed faith background, and her the self-portrait that she has, which sits in our rep section on representation, displays her looking in a very challenging but but reflective way out at the viewer and it seems to me to be an object which speaks of both her own complexity around her identity that identity is always complex and the the politics of representation is always complex it's kind of internal and external but it also speaks to something that we really tried to attend to in this exhibition, which was to recognise that freedoms and oppressions of, are experienced differently by different women at different times. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, today there are many people, many women who live very vulnerable, precarious lives as a result of their class or their race and their background. And there are many women who experience enormous freedoms because of their class and their race and their background. And we wanted to make sure that those different voices, uh, those different accounts were accounted for. And I think having Khadija Say's piece of work there is really powerful at the start. So that is one of my absolute favorites. We're very grateful to the Say Estate for allowing us to display that. Also in the body section, we have a cycling costume from the 1890s, which in a way it's, it's a sort of rather ordinary house dress in some senses and it's it's up on a mannequin and i love that outfit because in the 1880s when cycling was first available to people it was a completely liberatory machine tool for women to be able to move freely around the world so it was taken up by particularly progressive women suffragettes, new women as they were called. And a lot of women were sort of laughed at and ridiculed for cycling. But one of the issues with cycling, of course, was their clothing, because they're wearing this ridiculous kind of 19th century huge dresses and corsets and getting on a bike. It was actually quite dangerous. And there were sort of accounts in the newspapers of people having accidents, women having accidents on their bikes. And so a whole movement of rational dress started off. And you've probably seen like women in kind of tweed-like bloomers and yes. things. So that's kind of rational dress. But of course, that marks you out as someone who was very progressive and a little bit radical and edgy. But there were lots of women who wanted to ride bikes but didn't want to necessarily look radical and edgy. And so there's a tradition of women, and there's very few of these costumes available or still in existence, of women adjusting their ordinary dresses in order that they can ride a bike. And the dress that we've got on display probably just came from someone like a housemaid, not someone particularly wealthy. It's quite a sort of humble dress. But the owner has stitched in ties on the inside so you can hoik it up, hop on a bike, but then you can undo your ties and just walk around the town and no one will know you've been on a bike. Stealth feminism. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I just love it. I think it's ingenious. It's make, do and mend. It's kind of playing at the boundaries of what it means to be a woman. And yet it's also, you know, very everyday as well. So I love that object. That makes sense of the photo of the male Cambridge alumni who didn't want women to be allowed to get degrees. And the effigy of the woman is a woman on a bike. Exactly. So this is a, a great example of uh, how much has changed in terms of education. Also how resistant mainstream society was to things changing because this was the example that we've got which is fireworks and confetti which came from the protests in 1897 against women being granted degrees at Cambridge University because although women went to university in Cambridge at that time they could only get a diploma and so a vote was taken in order to see whether women would be allowed to get degrees 
And there were huge protests from men against this idea. So fireworks, confetti, this huge kind of crowds gathered, including hanging out of a window, an effigy of a woman on a bicycle because she's a new woman wearing rational dress. And, and then seen as kind of either ridiculous, but also monstrous and threatening as yeah. well. And in fact, people were so, society was so kind of horrified by the idea of women being given a degree for the work that they'd studied for, uh, that they, the Times newspaper published the timetable of trains from London to Cambridge in order that alumni could go back to Cambridge to vote against women being given a degree. It failed, that vote, th three to one, and it wasn't until 1948 that women could get a degree from Cambridge. 1948. <laughs> it's staggering. Lucky girls. Aren't we, aren't we lucky? <laughs> we should just be sat here counting our blessings and doing some embroidery. So how tricky is an exhibition like this to put together, given that her stories have historically not been documented, particularly if we're talking about working class women or women of colour, that archive material must be a lot harder to come by. That's a really great question. I mean, of course, there has been tremendous work and energy from you know, feminist libraries, feminist archives, community groups who've done an enormous amount of work in celebrating and archiving women's history. So, of course, you know, like the Feminist Library, the Women's Library, Glasgow Women's Library, you know, we have drawn from all of these places, these mm -hmm. specialist places for material, and they have extraordinary collections. We also have wonderful collections as well, because although you're, you're right that some of these histories are lesser known, more hidden as a legal deposit library, as a library with the kind of vast amounts of collections that we have. We've got incredible resources, but also in the last, I mean, well, in the, certainly in the last decade, we've been making very conscious and active efforts to collect in these areas. So, you know, collecting oral histories of women's liberation movement feminists. We've got the Virago archive. We've got Carmen Khalil's archive. You know, these are just examples, but collecting very consciously in this area to make sure that these histories are saved, that they are available for future generations and doing that in conversation and partnership with libraries and archives ac across the country. You mentioned that's over the last sort of decade. Do you feel that the appetite for these stories, for this history, has, has got larger over that period of time? I actually think the appetite has always been there. I don't think that that's new. I think the stories, they stand up. I mean, they're such interesting stories. They're so fascinating. They connect to us all. I think it's a bit like, you know, it is a bit like a sort of snowball. Once you start, you sort of, you do one or two events, you realise, oh, that's funny, we've sold all those events out on women's mm -hmm. history. And then oh, we've done this resource and it's being used loads and loads. And it's a sort of snowball. You realise uh, that not only are you picking up more and more audiences, but the, the institutional organisations get confident in thinking this is really engaging and relevant. And at the same time, look around you, look what's going on, read the newspapers, look at the television. You know, th this is living history. We're all living it. Yeah, so definitely. it's totally relevant. So I think it, I don't think it wasn't of interest. I just think this is a particular moment of energy and focus, which is very exciting to be living through. Yeah, there is that aspect of stuff when you go, why, why? I'm so baffled as to why a lot of institutions are surprised that something that accommodates women is popular with a good 50 plus percent of the population. Who knew? It just shouldn't be such a surprise. But 
I think something else that unfinished business does incredibly well is show that in all aspects of society, in all aspects of all cultures, the male gaze has been so dominant that it's been hard to to find a female gaze, right? <laughs> yeah, there's there a lot of content. There's there's a lot of dominant stories, but actually, when you start looking, you can tell another history there's another view that's definitely there and available to be told and people are really engaged with it you know it's 50 percent of the population but you know many people are interested in it most people are interested in it because it is interesting we've done in addition to the exhibition partly in recognition that because of covid some people will not be able to come um so we've also done fantastic exhibition website which will be online from this friday and we've also done a podcast series over the top of the exhibition as well which allows us to sort of delve more in, in more depth into particular subjects and so we've got i think we've got podcasts on domestic violence on the politics of sexual pleasure on women in comedy all sorts of really hang on it sounds subjects. like our podcast <laughs> No, it's very different. No, because we take exhibition objects <laughs> and we focus in on those. Okay, we take objects. Uh, we had Laurie Nunn, who was the creator of Sex Education, mm, uh, on great the program. podcast, a brilliant podcast, and her talking about uh, on the episode about the politics of sexual pleasure, and she was really funny and was sort of saying. She said, you know, it's funny because we've had to watch loads and loads and loads of action movies. We've seen that story a million times, and then you have one story about a woman, and everyone's like, Ooh, we've done the women. Just, you know, there's a lot more stories to tell. Hi, Hannah here. Just having a nice cup of tea. And wanted to remind you that if you like what we do, you can help support us. You can do that by going to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue, where you can throw some readies at us to help us keep producing the kind of thing that you seem to enjoy listening to and also keep me in tea. Thank you. So on the back of what you were just saying, are you expecting any kind of kickback? Because quite often when, and the exhibition shows this, when women put a presence into the world, it's not always gone down well with certain sectors of society. Men, I mean men. (laughs) So... uh we want this exhibition to be lively and engaging and that means that we want people to have conversations and have views about it we don't want people to walk through and have no feeling whatsoever about it that that is totally fine we want that to happen it's a live story it's changing every day so not everyone is going to love every aspect of the exhibition It's a very, very bold exhibition in that it's trying to tell a huge story. In telling that huge story, inevitably, what it's had to do is tell, you know, lots of stories, but not in great depth. So there's things which have been left out, which are missing. We're very conscious of that. We're very upfront about that. And at the end of the exhibition, we sort of ask all visitors, you know, what stories are still to be told, what's missing, what needs to change. Because this isn't the definitive end of the conversation. This is an opening to a conversation. And there are so, as many stories as there are women. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we were never trying to be definitive. We're not trying to say we know it all. We're trying to say these stories and this history is fantastic. This current moment we're living in is really exciting and look how they're connected and let's keep talking about them. Whether you like everything we've done or you don't, that's fine. Let's have a conversation. There's an incredible energy 
within the exhibition. And I am taking into account that clearly I've not seen very much recently because I've been mostly in my house. <laughs> but even with that, even bearing that in mind, it's a very exciting exhibition. And I hope you are suitably proud of it. I'm really, really thrilled. And we wanted it, you know, right at the very beginning, we said we don't want it to be kind of mausoleum-like, sort of reverential and quiet, and everyone comes as though they're going into a church. And, or a library. You know, or a library, indeed. <laughs> indeed. We want it to be loud, noisy, engaging and stimulating. And I think that's what we've got. In fact, in one part, I actually think it's slightly too noisy and it sounds like Studio 54, but that's fine. So it is kind of, you know, it's got this kind of energy about it, you know, and we wanted it to be like that. So we've got, you know, nine films and a whole AV space where you can come and watch nine films. We've got sound, we've got, you know, music, spoken voice. It's just loads of posters, pictures everywhere. Yeah, it's busy and I am absolutely thrilled. It's probably worth covering because obviously uh, the British Library is in London. London is currently in Tier 2. A lot of my beloved North has been in Tier 2 for before they even came up with tiers um, <laughs> and now is in Tier 3. But you've, you've made it so that people who can physically get to the exhibition will feel comfortable. There's a one-way system, mass reinforced, there's loads of hand sanitizer. But you've also made sure that it is open to people in other ways and I know you mentioned the podcast and the website but how will people access those yeah I'm really glad you've asked that because yeah you're right on site it's definitely you know the site is sanitized it's not a sanitized experience so but you, you will hopefully, hopefully feel very very safe when you if you come here and we want everyone to come who can if you can't come here, there are lots of other ways to engage with the exhibition. We've got a fantastic series of online events coming up, including, for instance, Gloria Stein, I'm speaking. Amazing. A legend. Yeah. Yes. Amazing events. So do check those out. And anyone can watch those if they have access to the internet. As I said before, incredible exhibition website with objects from the exhibition and articles around them. We have done a digital map of spare rib readers and listings. So we have gone through, we're working with a research project called the Business of Women's Words. We have gone through all the issues of spare rib and we have mapped digitally all the readers and the listings so that we have a geographical map of feminism from 1971 to 1992. Wow. That is something to get lost in and have great fun with. And then we've got libraries across the country with our Living Knowledge Network are doing partnership exhibitions. So look to your local library because there may be a mini exhibition which will be supplemented by those local libraries so you don't necessarily have to come to London. And then there's the Unfinished Business podcast series which is an absolute treat even though I say it myself. Your passion for this is so, so apparent and you're clearly really, really knowledgeable about all of the different sections that make up the exhibition as a whole. Was there anything that you stumbled across or light was shown upon that surprised you or opened your eyes to something that you hadn't thought about before? Yes. I mean, I, it's very nice of you to say that I'm knowledgeable. I do not, but I don't feel knowledgeable because I think this is a subject where you just keep on learning. Mm. You're never going to get to the end of this subject. It's not finite. It's not finite. And I'm working with a curatorial team of some of the most, you know, expert brilliant people who have incredible expertise in particular areas and strengths so I have learned a huge amount from them so I mean 
I think that my strengths were probably more in the sort of late 20th century. I've learned a lot more about the 19th century than I knew before, but I certainly not wouldn't call myself an expert on that at all. I've learned more about our manuscripts collections. And I think I've really understood about when you're doing an exhibition about trying to tease out stories and put objects into conversation with each other in complicated ways. And that has been really interesting. So I've understood more about how you bring out stories and bring them to life in, in perhaps quite challenging but interesting ways. I think one of my favourite objects is the Chainmaker's Hammer mm. and the story that goes with that. Would you mind explaining that story? Yeah, so that is, it is a wonderful object. It's this very solid looking hammer, isn't it? It's a very heavy, solid yeah, it looking looks hammer. really heavy. Which we borrowed from the Black Country Museum, and it's a chainmaker's hammer. Um, chainmakers working in the 19th and early 20th century um, in that area were usually sweated labour working in the, the backs of their own private, in their own private yards. Um, very, very low pay, were unable to join unions at that time. Women couldn't join unions. The hammer itself, not only does it look like this solid, chunky sort of object that looks heavy to, to hold, um, you can see the indentation of the woman's hand in it. So you can see the kind of evidence of her labour, of how hard this work was. So it's a very uh, powerful object in itself. And also the kind of making of chains and the, the, his thinking about chains and what chains mean in terms of both industrial histories, but also histories of enslavement. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot packed into this, yeah, totally. into this hammer. But um, what's very, there's lots of interesting things about it, but one of the things is that the chain makers uh, in the early 20th century in 1907 went on strike and they're going on strike was very, very effective, partly because the unionist Mary MacArthur uh, sort of joined forces with them and campaigned with them and helped with their campaign. Mary MacArthur ran a magazine called The Woman Worker and was setting up unions for women. And she took on the cause of the chainmakers and advertised the chainmakers' plight. And she was incredibly savvy in terms of PR and Pathé. I mean, it's only in 1907, Pathé came and filmed them and that film went around the world. So they were known internationally as these women who were on strike. And as a result of that strike, those women won fair pay. And that strike set up was the precedent for the fair pay that we can all be grateful for now. The so minimum wage, Minimum right? wage, yep, exactly. That's incredible. As well as this, there is also an absolutely beautiful accompanying book. Do you want to give that a little plug? Yeah, I'd love to. It's edited by me and a wonderful woman called Margareta Jolly, who's a professor at Sussex University. But we invited 12 or 14 experts, authors, to write the different chapters because actually... You know, it felt right to have lots of different perspectives and lots of different views in this book that's talking about this very rich and diverse history rather than it being just one person's or even two people's voices. And so it follows the same structure as the exhibition. It features more than three quarters of the objects are photographed in the book. And it has lots of different voices and perspectives and is really detailed. It also has, and we haven't really talked about this, it also has what is also throughout the exhibition. It features all the activist organisations, the contemporary activist organisations, which are featured throughout the exhibition, relevant to any particular section. So, you know, Bloody Good Period, Galdem, Glasgow Women's Library, Now for Northern Ireland, Women for Refugee Women, all these wonderful 
organisations that are campaigning for particular aspects of women's rights today. So the book has information about those as well as talking about the longer history and the politics of these particular issues. And, you know, always important when we're talking about women, it is a good-looking object. (laughs) That was important. Of course. It was. It looks stylish. (laughs) Where can people find out more, please, Polly? If you go to the British Library website, you can find information about the tickets, the podcast series, the events, the amazing learning resources, and also the Living Knowledge Network. It's been amazing talking to you. I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for your time. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Standard Issue for All Women.